a note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him, turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages. God has said in his word, He that believeth shall not make haste, Isaiah 28.16. And if ever there was a time when his children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world. The mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith, and few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the Holy Scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips, are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, carry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality, no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from the life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24. Turning now to April 1932, Studies in the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, John 5.39. Editor, Arthur W. Pink, 1886 to 1952.
The six studies and the contents are the priestly office of Christ, the epistle to the Hebrews, the life of David, saving faith, prayer, and the eye of faith. Study number one, the priestly office of Christ. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Hebrews 5.1 Thus, a priest is a person who officiates in the name of others, approaching unto God to make atonement for them by sacrifice. The design of his ministrations is to render the object of our worship propitious, to avert his wrath from men, and to procure their restoration to his favor. As prophet, Christ treats with men in the name of God, making known to them his counsels and commands. As priest, he treats with God in the name of men, prevailing upon him to admit them to his friendship. That Christ should officiate as priest was determined upon in the eternal counsels of God. He was set forth or foreordained to be a propitiation, Romans 3.25, that is, to be a propitiatory sacrifice to make satisfaction for the sins of his people which is one part of Christ's priestly office on which redemption by his blood is founded, to which he was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 The sufferings and death of Christ were all according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2, 23 And whatsoever the Jews and Gentiles did to him was none other than what God's hand and counsel determined before to be done. Acts 4, 27 and 28. All that he endured was in the execution of his priestly office of which the decree of God was the spring. To this priestly office Christ was called of God. He did not glorify himself to be called a priest, but his father called him to take upon him this office, Hebrews 5, 5, invested him with it, Proverbs 8, 23, swore him into it, Psalm 110, 4, in the council and covenant of peace, Zechariah 6, 13, and this to show the importance, dignity, validity, and perpetuity of his priesthood to all which Christ agreed, saying, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not. I foresee that the blood of beasts offered by sinful men will not be in the issue acceptable to thee, nor sufficient to atone for sin. But a body hast thou prepared me, Psalm 46, in purpose, counsel and covenant, which I am willing in due time to assume and offer up a sacrifice unto divine justice. 
Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Hebrews 10.7 Christ is clearly set forth as priest in the prophecies of the Old Testament. I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. 1 Samuel 2.35 He was to be one who was to stand up with Urim and Thummim, Nehemiah 7.65. He would be a priest upon his throne, Zechariah 6.13. He would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4. He was to make his soul an offering for sin and make intercession for the transgressors, Isaiah 53.10. And twelve. It is very striking to notice that in some of his theophonic manifestations during Old Testament times, he appeared in the vestments of priests, clothed with linen, Ezekiel 9.2 and Daniel 10.5. Quoting John Calvin, Concerning his priesthood, we have briefly to remark that the end and use of it is that he may be a mediator, pure from every stain, and by his holiness may render us acceptable to God. But because the righteous curse prevents our access to him, and God in his character of judge is offended with us, in order that our priests may appease the wrath of God and procure his favor for us, there is a necessity for the intervention of an atonement. Wherefore, that Christ might perform this office, it was necessary for him to appear with a sacrifice. For even under the law, the priest was not permitted to enter the sanctuary without blood that the faithful might know that notwithstanding the interposition of the priest as an intercessor, yet it was impossible for God to be propitiated without the expiation of sin. It is in the epistle to the Hebrews, and there alone in the New Testament, that the theme of Christ's priesthood is unfolded. The reason for this being that It was to the Jews only God had entrusted the sole representation of it in their typical priesthood. In that epistle we are shown how Christ fulfilled all that was foreshadowed of him both by Aaron and by Melchizedek. Unto those desiring to make a fuller study for themselves we would point out it is most important to observe that it is not until after the Apostle had shown how Christ had fulfilled what Aaron foreshadowed, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, that he is saluted and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, chapter 5, verse 10. We would also emphasize the fact that our Lord is not said to be an high priest of the order of Melchizedek, but after the order of. The difference between the two expressions is real and radical. The word of 
would have necessarily limited his priesthood to a certain order. But that could not be. His priesthood is not restricted to any human order, nor could any one man fully prefigured, still less perform, all that pertains to Christ's priesthood. Both the typical persons of Aaron and Melchizedek were required to adumbrate the varied excellencies and activities of our great high priest. The former sets forth in fullest detail the nature of his sacerdotal functions. There is no record in Scripture that Melchizedek offered any sacrifice unto God, officiated in any holy place, the tabernacle not being built till the days of Moses, or that he made intercession for transgressions, all of which are the very things which pertain to Christ's priestly office. But Aaron did offer a propitiatory sacrifice unto God, Leviticus 16, enter into the Holy of Holies, bore the names of Israel in the breastplate of judgment over his heart, and carried the sweet incense into the very presence of Jehovah. Supplementing this, Melchizedek presaged the dignity of Christ's person. He was a royal priest, and his office independent of human heredity. The without father without mother, of Hebrews 7.3, denoting that he owed not his sacerdotal office unto fleshly ancestry, as did the Levitical priests. Socinians, Unitarians, and others who are infected with their poison quote Hebrews 8.4 to prove that Christ only entered upon the discharge of his sacerdotal office after his ascension. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. But this means first that had Christ's office been of the same kind as the Levitical, which functioned all the days of his flesh, he could not have been a priest, because the office was vested in a tribe to which he did not belong, and second, that if the whole of his sacerdotal functions were to be executed on earth, he must be excluded from the priestly office, because he had no legal access into the Holy of Holies in the earthly temple at Jerusalem. There his blood could not be presented that Christ entered upon his priestly office and that he exercised its functions before his ascension is abundantly established by the plainest evidence of Scripture. First, he was made a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2.17 and Romans 5.10 affirms that we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Second, we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Hebrews 4.14, who was, namely in the time of His humiliation, tempted, and so forth. Verse 15. 
Third, in the days of his flesh he offered up language which always denotes a priestly act, prayers and supplications. Chapter 5, verse 7. Fourth, for such a high priest became us, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer sacrifice. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Chapter 7, verses 26 to 28. Fifth, at Calvary, the Lord Jesus was not only the Lamb of God bearing judgment, but he was also his priest officiating at the altar. For every priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Chapter 8, verse 3. He offered himself without spot to God. Chapter 9, verse 14. Sixth. But Christ being come an high priest, by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. Chapter 9, verse 12. Finally, if Christ was not a priest before his entrance into heaven, if he did not enter therein on the ground of the sacrifice which he offered to God on the cross, then all the analogy between the type of Leviticus 16 and the antitype is utterly destroyed. To quote from Westminster Catechism, how doth Christ execute the office of priest? Answer. Christ executeth that office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people and in making continual intercession for them. Unquote. In this answer, the two great branches of the Mediator's sacerdotal work are briefly described. The second duty of his priestly office was typified by the entrance of Aaron into the Holy of Holies, where he sprinkled the blood of the atoning sacrifice and burned incense before the mercy seat. The antitype of this is Christ's entrance into heaven there to appear in the presence of God for us. As Aaron's entrance into the holiest was after the sacrifice had been slain, so it was with our Lord. Concerning the needs before and the nature of his intercession, who are the subjects and what is its design, we have treated of in our articles on the intercession of Christ. Because of the perfect union between his deity and humanity, Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 2.17 To be merciful is to be compassionate, ever ready under the influence of a tender sympathy to support, comfort, and deliver. Having trod the same path as his suffering and tried people, Christ is able to enter into their afflictions. He is not like an angel which has never experienced pain. He is man. Nor 
have his sympathies been impaired by his exaltation to heaven. The same human heart beats within the bosom of him who sits at God's right hand as caused him to weep over Jerusalem. To be faithful means that his compassions are regulated by holiness, his sympathies are exercised according to the requirements of God's truth. There is a perfect balance between his maintenance of God's claims and his ministering to our infirmities. Arthur Ping Study number 2 The Epistle to the Hebrews Apostasy Hebrews 10, 25-27 we have now reached one of the most solemn and fear-inspiring passages to be found not only in this epistle, but in all the Word of God. May the Holy Spirit fit each of our hearts to approach it in that godly trembling which becomes those who have within their own hearts the seeds of apostasy. Let it be duly considered at the outset that the verses which are now to be before us were addressed not to those who made no profession of being genuine Christians, but instead unto them whom the Spirit of Truth owned as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Chapter 3, verse 1. Nevertheless, he now deports them from stepping over the brink of that awful precipice which was before them and faithfully warns of the certain destruction which would follow did they do so. Instead of replying to this with arguments drawn from the eternal security of God's saints, let us seek grace to honestly face the terrible danger which menaces each of us while we remain in this world of sin and to use all necessary means to avoid so fearful and fatal a calamity. In the past, dear hearer, there have been thousands who were just as confident that they had been genuinely saved and were truly trusting in the merits of the finished work of Christ to take them safely through to heaven as you may be. Nevertheless, they are now in the torments of hell. Their confidence was a carnal one. Their faith no better than that which the demons have. Their faith was but a natural one which rested on the bare letter of Scripture. It was not a supernatural one wrought in the heart by God. They were too confident that their faith was a saving one to thoroughly, searchingly, frequently tested by the Scriptures to discover whether or no it was bringing forth those fruits which are inseparable from the faith of God's elect. If they read an article like this, they proudly concluded that it belonged to someone else. So cocksure were they that they were born again so many years ago, they refused to heed the command of 2 Corinthians 13.5, Prove your own selves, and now it is too late. 
They wasted their day of opportunity, and the blackness of darkness is their portion forever. In view of this solemn and awful fact, the writer earnestly calls upon himself and each hearer to get down before God and sincerely cry, Search me, O God, reveal me to myself. If I am deceived, undeceive me, ere it be eternally too late. Enable me to measure myself faithfully by thy word, so that I may discover whether or no my heart has been renewed, whether I have abandoned every course of self-will and truly surrendered to thee, whether I have so repented that I hate all sin and fervently long to be free from its power, loathe myself and seek diligently to deny myself whether my faith is that which overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4, or whether it be only a mere notional thing which produces no godly living, whether I am a fruitful branch of the vine or only a cumberer of the ground, in short, whether I be a new creature in Christ or only a painted hypocrite. If I have an honest heart, then I am willing, yea, anxious, to face and know the real truth about myself. Perhaps some hearers are ready to say, I already know the truth about myself. I believe what God's Word tells me. I am a sinner with no good thing dwelling in me. My only hope is in Christ. Yes, dear friend, but Christ saves His people from their sins. Christ sends His Holy Spirit into their hearts so that they are radically changed from what they were previously. The Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in the hearts of those He regenerates, and that love is manifested by a deep desire and sincere determination to please Him who loves me. When Christ saves a soul, He saves not only from hell, but from the power of sin. He delivers him from the dominion of Satan and from the love of the world. He delivers him from the fear of man, the lust of the flesh, the love of self. True, he has not yet completed this blessed work. True, the sinful nature is not yet eradicated, but one who is saved has been delivered from the dominion of sin. Romans 6.14 Salvation is a supernatural thing which changes the heart, renews the will, transforms the life so that it is evident to all around that a miracle of grace has been wrought. Thus it is not sufficient for me to ask, have I repudiated my own righteousness? Have I renounced all my good works to fit me for heaven? Am I trusting alone to Christ? Many will earnestly and sincerely affirm these things who yet give no evidence that they have passed from death unto life. Then what more is necessary for me to ascertain whether or no my faith be a truly saving one? This, there are certain things which accompany salvation, Hebrews 6.9, things which are inseparable from it. And for these I must look and be sure 
I have them. A bundle of wood that sends forth neither heat nor smoke has no fire under it. A tree which in summer bears neither fruit nor leaves is dead. So a faith which does not issue in godly living in an obedient walk in spiritual fruit is not the faith of God's elect. O my hearer, I beg you to diligently and faithfully examine yourself by the light of God's unerring word. Claim not to be a child of Abraham unless you do the works of Abraham. John 8.39 What is apostasy? It is a making shipwreck of the faith. 1 Timothy 1.19 It is the heart's departure from the living God. Hebrews 3.13 It is a returning to and being overcome by the world after a previous escape from its pollutions through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2.20 There are various steps which precede it. First there is a looking back. Luke 9.62 Like Lot's wife who Though she had outwardly left Sodom, yet her heart was still there. Second, there is a drawing back. Hebrews 10.38 The requirements of Christ are too exacting to any longer appeal to the heart. Third, there is a turning back. John 6.66 The path of godliness is too narrow to suit the lustings of the flesh. Fourth, there is a falling back which is fatal. That they might go and fall backward and be broken. Isaiah 28.13 Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Verse 25 this verse forms the transition between the subject of Christian perseverance treated of in verses 23 and 24 and that of apostasy, which is developed in verse 26 and onwards, though it is much more closely related to the latter than to the former. Most of the commentators are astray on this point through failing to observe the absence of the word and at the beginning of it, and because they perceive not the significance of the word forsake. In reality, the contents of this verse form a faithful warning against apostasy. First, the Hebrews are cautioned against forsaking public worship. Second, it is pointed out that some had already done so. Third, they are bidden to exhort one another with increased diligence, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Before attempting an exposition of these words, let us first relieve them of a false application which some seek to make of them today. Just as of old, Satan made a wrong use of Psalm 91, 11, and 12, in his tempting of the Savior, Matthew 4, 6. So he does with the verse before us. Few are aware of how often 
the devil brings the scripture before our minds. When a Christian is seeking to be out and out for Christ, the devil will quote to him, Be not righteous over much. Ecclesiastes 7.16 Likewise, when a child of God resolves to obey 2 Timothy 3.5 and Hebrews 13.13 and separates from all who do not live godly, the enemy reminds him of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Romanists used the same text in the early days of the Reformation and charged Luther and his friends with disobeying this divine command. But God's word does not contradict itself. It does not tell us in one place, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 And here bid the sheep to fraternize with goats. When rightly understood, this verse affords no handle to those who seek to discourage faithfulness to Christ. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, John Owen rightly pointed out that there is a synodarchy apart put for the whole in the word assembling, and it is put for the whole worship of Christ, because worship was performed in their assemblies, and he that forsakes the assemblies forsakes the worship of Christ, as some of them did when exposed to danger. Unquote. What is here deported is the total relinquishment of Christianity. It is not cease not to attend the assembly, but forsake not, abandon not the assembling of yourselves together. It is not the sin of sloth or of schism which is here considered, but that of apostasy. If a professing Christian forsook the Christian churches and became a Mohammedan, he would disobey this verse. But for one who put the honor of Christ before everything else to turn his back upon the so-called churches where he is now so grievously dishonored is not a failure to comply with its terms. The Greek word for forsake not is a very strong and emphatic one, being a double compound and signifies to abandon in time of danger. It is the word used by the agonizing Redeemer on the cross when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was used by him again when he declared, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to seek corruption. Acts 2.27 It is the word employed by Paul in Second Timothy 4.10 Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. It is found in only one other place in this epistle, where it is in obvious antitheses from the verse now before us. He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Chapter 13, verse 5. Thus it will appear that a total and final abandonment of the public profession of Christianity is what is here warned against. One may therefore discern how that 
Verse 25 supplies the most appropriate link between verses 23, 24, and 26. Verse 25 prescribes another means to enable the wavering Hebrews to remain constant in the Christian faith. If they were to hold fast the confession of faith without wavering, and if they were to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, then they must not forsake the assembling of themselves together. The word for assembling together is a double compound and occurs elsewhere in the New Testament only in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Our gathering together unto Him, that is, unto Christ, this also shows that the assembling together here is under one head, and that the forsaking is because He has been turned away from. To enforce this caution, the Apostle adds, as the manner of some is, the Greek word for manner signifies custom, and is so translated in Luke 2.42. This supplies additional confirmation that the evil against which the Hebrews were deported was no mere occasionally absenting themselves from the Christian churches, but a deliberate fixed and final departure from them. In John 6.66, we read that from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. John also wrote of those who went out from us, but they were not of us. 1 John 2.19 Whilst at the close of his labors Paul had to say, All they which are in Asia, be turned away from me. 2 Timothy 1.15 So here, some who had made a profession of the Christian faith had now abandoned the same and gone back to Judaism. It was to warn the others against this fatal step that the Apostle now wrote as he did. Compare 1 Corinthians 10.12 and Romans 11.20 but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Here is the positive side of our verse. This is another of the means appointed by God to confirm Christians in their holy confession. To exhort one another is a duty to which all Christians are called. Alas, how rarely is it performed these evil days. Yet from the human side, such failure is hardly to be wondered at. The vast majority of professing Christians wish to be petted and flattered rather than exhorted and cautioned. Most of them are so hypersensitive that the slightest criticism offends them. One who seeks grace to be faithful and to act in true love to those whom he supposes are his brethren and sisters in Christ has a thankless task before him so far as man is concerned. He will soon lose nearly all his friends, question mark, and sever the fellowship, question mark, which exists between him and them. But this will only give him a little taste of the fellowship of his sufferings. Hebrews 3.13 
is still God's command. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. There seems little room for doubt that the first reference here is to the destruction of the Jewish commonwealth, which was now very nigh, for this epistle was written within less than eight years before Jerusalem was captured by Titus. That terrible catastrophe had been foretold again and again by Israel's prophets and was plainly announced by the Lord Jesus in Luke 21. The approach of that dreadful day could be plainly seen or perceived by those possessing spiritual discernment. The continued refusal of the nation to repent of their murder of Christ and the abandoning of Christianity for an apostate Judaism by such large numbers clearly presaged the bursting of the storm of God's judgment. This very fact supplied an additional motive for genuine Christians to remain faithful. The Lord Jesus promised that his followers should be preserved from the destruction of Jerusalem, but only as they attended to his cautions in Luke 21, 8, 19, 34, and so forth, only as they persevered in faith and holiness, Matthew 24, 13. The particular motive unto diligence here set before the Hebrews is applicable to other Christians just to the extent that they find themselves in similar circumstances. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Verse 26. The general truth here set forth is that should those who have been converted and become Christians apostatize from Christ, their state would be hopeless. This is presented under the following details. First, because of the nature of this sin, namely a deliberate and final abandonment of the Christian faith. Second, the ones warned against the committal of it. Third, the terrible aggravation of it did such commit it. Fourth, the unpardonableness of it. For if we sin willfully, the casual particle whereby this verse is premised has at least a threefold force. First, and more immediately, it points the plain and inevitable conclusion from what has just been said in verse 25. They who forsake and abandon the Christian assemblies with all that they stand for commit a sin for which the sacrifice of Christ avails not. Should it be said that Scripture declares the blood of Christ cleanseth from all sin, the reply is that it only says the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin and none of those spoken of throughout that verse, 1 John 1, 7, ever commit this sin. Moreover, that very same epistle plainly teaches there is a sin for which the blood of Christ does not avail. See 1 John 5, 16. Second, and more generally, 
A reason is here adduced as to why Christians need to heed the exhortations given in verses 22 to 25. The duties therein prescribed are the means which God has appointed for preserving his people against this unpardonable crime. Third, and more remotely, a solemn warning is here given against the wrong use being made of the precious promise recorded in chapter 10, verse 17. That blessed declaration is not designed to encourage a course of carelessness and recklessness. For if we sin willfully, John Brown said, the word sin here is plainly used in a somewhat peculiar sense. It is descriptive not of sin generally, but of a particular kind of sin, apostasy from the faith and profession of the truth once known and professed. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.